Whenever somebody brings something to your attention that uh, is maybe something you did wrong or that needs correction, uh, we have basically three different responses that we can give to uh, the person in that moment. And the first response, uh, the first choice you can make is to tell them, well, here's why what I did isn't wrong. So somebody might say, hey, you did this and it was wrong, you know, maybe it was at work or maybe it's how you're talking to them or whatever it is. And they might say, hey, I, I want to point this out to you. And they might say, well, here, you can, we can say, well, here's why what I did wasn't wrong. And we can kind of like justify our actions or say, you know, it was, I was doing it this way because I thought that would be best for us. So we can say, here's why uh, what I did isn't wrong. Secondly, you could say to the person, here's why what you're doing is wrong. Somebody comes to you and corrects you. And then you can say to them, like, who are you to, you know, be putting this on me? I mean, look at yourself, like all the things you do wrong. And so we can say, well, you're wrong in bringing this up to me because uh, you really shouldn't be putting these rules on me or you have really no right to be talking to me like this or pointing that out. You're, you might say they're a hypocrite or something. And the third option is to say, what I did was wrong. Somebody says, you've done this wrong. You've said this thing uh, to me or I noticed you did that. And you can say, you're right. I, I was wrong. Uh, I'm sorry. And so those three responses we can have is here's why what I did isn't wrong, here's why what you're doing is wrong, or yes, what I did is wrong. And the first two can be combined into any number of things, blaming or justifying, uh, defending ourselves, or just kind of uh, trying to hide it. And this is very relevant to our series that we're continuing, this three-week series, setting uh, our theme for the year. Uh, and this three-week series is called Learning to Love and Be Loved. And we started last week by asking, what is a disciple? And the answer we gave was a disciple, you know, first and foremost, is someone loved by Jesus. That when we, a disciple, the word in the Bible, it just means learner, someone who's learning. And Jesus asked people, uh, I'm going to want you to come follow me, be my disciple, learn from me, see how I do life, see how I interact with God. You can have the relationship with God that I have. I want to show you how to do that. And so they came to learn. And first and foremost, Jesus is showing people learning to be loved by God, to see God as a father. Uh, that loves us. And so someone loved by God, someone loved by Jesus. And then we saw also, well, if we're loved by Jesus, that's going to bring fruit in our life of now we're going to be loving God uh, and we're going to be loving other people as well. And this week we're asking the question, well, how do we make a disciple? So what is a disciple of Jesus? How do we make a disciple of Jesus? We saw last week, Matthew 28, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, uh, teaching them to obey all the commands of you, baptizing them. And so we're going to talk about how we uh, make one, those, those commands that we're seeing. And next week we're going to talk about how do we know when we've made one. So and you can apply this to yourself. Uh, if you're calling yourself a disciple of Jesus, you can say, well, this is what it means for me to be a disciple. This is what it looks like for me to grow as a disciple. And this is how I would know if I actually am following Jesus, what would I see in my life? And I just want to give you this question. What is the greatest hindrance to your relationship with God? What is the greatest hindrance your relationship with God? What's the thing that most gets in the way of your relationship with God? And perhaps you would say, well, it's not praying, or not reading my Bible, or not coming to church services. Uh, and Jesus, he, he identifies two things as he's talking about a uh, seed being, he's like, I'm sowing the seed of God's word in the world. And there's two things, well, first people can just be totally hard and not receive it. And then the other thing that can uh, trip people up is that they, uh, start to experience some suffering because of their faith and then they fall away or people get um, well basically it's two things can trip us up stuff and suffering that the stuff of this world can distract us and pull us away we may receive god's word with joy initially but then we're pulled away or suffering we start suffering from following jesus 
um, of like taking a stand. It's like, well, I'm going to kind of pull back a bit so we can start with joy, but then and go away. And those things, we could say all this would be right. I mean, obviously Jesus is right. <laughs> Stuff and suffering pulls us away. And we could say, well, when I'm not reading my Bible, when I'm not praying, when I'm not involved in a Christian community, that's a hindrance to my relationship with God. And we could call all of it sin. And yet sin is not the greatest hindrance to our relationship with God. Actually, hidden sin is the greatest hindrance to our relationship with God. Bringing, and what God wants us to do is to bring all of our sin all of our failures, all of our mess, all of our doubt, all of our wandering uh, to Him, and that's actually the path to growth. When we hide it, that hinders our relationship with God. When we bring it to Him, He can do something with it. And we're going to look at um, two main passages this morning, and the first is uh, Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3, and we're not going to read through the whole thing. I'm going to have to summarize it, but this Genesis is going to be the page one of your Bible, if you're looking for it, and whatever Bible, I can say that about the Bibles we have here and the Bibles that you brought, page one. So just to summarize Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to be focusing on relationships. Last week was all about relationships, being loved by God, loving God, loving others. And so chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis tell us how relationships are meant to be. And what we see is that there's two main relationships we have, relationship with God and relationship with other people. And so God creates the world. And he creates it to be this home where he gets to live humanity. Humanity and God living together with God. And God is supposed to be our secure base our safe and our safe haven, uh, which is our secure base. is like he's a uh, secure way that we can go and explore the world and we know that's where we can return back to. And our safe haven that we can come back to him when things don't go right, when we're hurt, when we get scared, when we're sad. And in God, we're, we get provision, we get guidance, we get belonging, who... Whose am I? I belong to God. Uh, who am I? I am God's, God's beloved. God loves me. And what's my purpose? Well, like we talked about last week, to be loved by God is our ultimate purpose. Is that where it starts and then out from that flows everything else. And we see this really beautiful picture later in uh, chapter 3 that uh, God came to take his usual walk with the first humans, Adam and Eve. That the life is to be this walk with God, that we're going through it with him. And we also see that there is... Uh, relationship with one another, with other humans. And we see that Adam is created by God, and God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he creates Eve, his wife, and finally he sees this as a companion for me, someone who fits me, that we are complementary to one another, and that uh, a spouse is God's gift to him. And he, it says they're supposed to cling to another, one another, become one flesh. We're told at the very end of chapter 2 that they're naked and not ashamed. And so we see this picture of what life is supposed to be like with God, this relationship where he's our secure base, our safe haven, and also with one another, that there's not this, and we don't, that this isn't to mean like we should all start a nudist colony, but that nakedness is like there's this openness. We're not ashamed. Like, you can see me for who I am, and I don't need to be afraid of that, that you get to know the real me. But then we see something go wrong in Genesis chapter 3. And I wish we could analyze every detail of it, because the more I go back to that passage, just the, the more I see in this, uh, Genesis chapter 3, um, the first verses 1 through 7 is where we're focusing on what happens here. Um, and I, actually it's uh, 1 through 13. And so I want you to have these two circles in your mind. That the one circle was the first one we looked at, how relationships are meant to be. And then we're going to see this other circle that is going to happen, and it's going to be how things went wrong, how our relationships are now. And you see that what happens is that there's, God has an enemy, and God comes to the first humans, Adam and Eve, and he basically convinces them, God doesn't really love you. Like, can you really trust him to, to be good, to have your 
best interests in mind. Like, I don't think this is the best way for you to do your life. And so what we see first is they're given a lie about God's love. And that leads them to doubt what they shouldn't doubt, which is doubting that God loves them. And because they doubted what they shouldn't doubt, they begin to desire what they shouldn't have, shouldn't desire, which is to do life on their own terms. And then they do what they shouldn't do, which is they disobey God. So they doubt something they shouldn't doubt, which leads to desiring something they shouldn't desire, which leads to doing something they shouldn't do. So they have lie about God's love, which makes them want to do life on their own terms. It's like, well, God has told us how to live, but if we can't really trust his love, maybe it will be better to do life on our own terms. And then they then go to disobeying God, doing what he told them not to do. And what happens is God comes to take his usual walk. We're told in um, uh, chapter one, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden uh, in the cool of the day. And so God's coming in the garden, the, this place that he had made for them to be home with them. And then what they do is when they hear that, they hide. They cover up. They, that nakedness, they were naked and not ashamed. Now that they've done what, they, now they've disobeyed, it says they went and hid from each other. First, they tried to cover themselves up with like these uh, fig leaves. And then God comes and they're hiding from him too. And so what happens is there's this hiding, there's this lack of openness. And then God says, um, he says, where are you? And then they say, well, we heard you coming, and so we hid. And then they say, well, did you eat from the, did you do what I told you not to do? And then they say, yes, but the, the, the husband says, yes, but uh, this woman that you gave me, she's the one who got me to do it. And then God's like, is that what happened? He's a, she says, no, it was the serpent. It was your enemy who came in. He got me to do it. So they're hiding, they're blaming, they're covering up, they're defending themselves. And this is happening with God and with one another. And now, that's very different from the first circle, naked, not ashamed. They know God's love, secure base, safe haven. With him, with one another, there's this closeness and connection. And then now what happens is there's a separation. This is the other, how relationships are now. That's how they're meant to be. This is how they are now. There's hiding, blaming, covering up, uh, defending themselves. And maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds a little bit like my life. And that's because it is that we live Genesis 3 every day. It's our default for our relationships. And notice what happens is that the vertical problem of their relationship with God is the root of their horizontal problems with one another. Vertically, they're alienated from God. They're disconnected. They're estranged. And that leads to estrangement and disconnecting and alienation horizontally. That they're having this broken horizontal relationships with other people is the fruit of the broken vertical relationship with God. And God says now things are cursed. Life here is cursed. That's how it is instead of blessed. And so we should ask, so how does our relationship with God get healed? If we're in this circle of the blaming, the hiding, and defending, and we want to get back to this circle of how relationships are meant to be, how do we do that? What is the path back? How do we enter back into the blessing of life with God? And we're going to be looking at now First John. We're going to at First John chapter 1, verse Five to chapter 2, verse 2. It's on page 1021 if you're using the Black Bibles here. So First John is going to be all the way in the New Testament, almost towards the end, um, right before last book is Revelation. And if you hit Revelation, just turn back a few pages and you'll find First John uh, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. And here, remember the two circles. In First John, we're given two circles, two different ways to live. There's two options for how to live. And we're going to compare them. One is in the dark. Let me just read these verses. It's a few verses. John chapter 1, 
starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So lots of if statements there, but the two options are you can walk in the dark, or you can walk in the light. You can be in the dark or in the light. And we're going to contrast what's the difference between these two. There's walking in the dark, what's true in that state. There's walking in the light, what's true in that state. So walking in the dark. It's interesting that walking in the dark, you might think, well, what does it mean for me to walk in the dark? I mean, maybe you are like, well, when I bumble around my house to find something in the fridge, it means I get stub my toe. But <laughs> what does it mean, like, spiritually? I might say, well, if I'm, like, dark, you know, that's, like, evil. That means I'm sinning. Like, walking in the dark means I'm, I'm sinning. But actually, he doesn't define it by not having sin, but by claiming to have no sin. So actually, walking in the dark isn't, I'm over here, and I just sin all the time, and that's what it means to walk in the dark. No, to walk in the dark means you have sin, and you deny having sin. And that's, that's important to see. And, and if we do that, we're told in these verses, we don't have fellowship with God. We're lying. We're not practicing the truth, which he says word later, which you could say that's like the gospel message. Here's the truth, that Jesus died for your sins. But if you're you know, denying that truth, that means you're saying, I don't have sin for Jesus to die for. So you're not walking the truth. You're not practicing it. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. You're calling God a liar. And his word is not in you. Those are all the things of somebody in the dark. So then in the light, we would think, well, light, that, that's good. That means this person doesn't have sin. But actually what we discovered is that walking in the light doesn't mean you don't have sin. It means that you are willing to bring your sin into the light, to confess that you do have it. And if we do that, we're told that we have fellowship with God, so a relationship with God. We have a relationship with one another. Uh, the blood of Jesus will cleanse us and forgive and God will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the major difference in these two circles, once again, we're seeing two walking in the dark, walking in the light, is that the person in the light has a relationship with both God and with other believers. And they are forgiven and they're cleansed. And so uh, we can ask again, what's the greatest hindrance to our relationship with God? What separates us from God, from having a relationship with Him? It's not sin but it's hidden sin, sin that we claim that we do not have. It's kind of like, how can the doctor help you if you won't admit you have a sickness? It's like God can't help us. And God is, in a, this hidden sin, uh, in the sin we have, God has provided the solution to our sin. It's Jesus' death, we're told there. But if we keep it hidden, it doesn't benefit us. We're unforgiven. So the person who has hidden sin saying, I don't have any, they can't be forgiven because they won't bring it into the light for God to then forgive them and cleanse them from it. What we're seeing here is there's this reversal of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3, hiding, blaming, covering up. And we can cover up and you might be like, well, I don't have any fig leaves around that I'm covering up. We can cover up ourselves in lots of ways. By Well, I work really hard, or I'm a really good parent, or I go to church services, I give money, I read my Bible. We can cover up with even religious things of saying that's how I'm covering up my sin. And yet God says to us, come up, come out, come out into the light and confess it. And so they, and we saw in Genesis 3, they're in, they believed the lie about God's love. And because of that, they sinned. 
And because of that, they're hiding, hiding and covering up and blaming. And what God comes and asks of Adam and Eve, he says, where are you? Not that God doesn't know. Obviously, he knows where they are. But, you know, we ask kids things that we already know the answer to, but we're wanting to draw them out. And so he says to them, well, where are you? And you can, you know, what tone do you think God comes in that moment? Is it a, where are you, Adam and Eve? Is it, sorry, that's, sorry. I hope that hopefully it wasn't scare you. Or is it a, where are you? And I think what we know from God is that he has this gentle patience. We see that in this passage, that he wants them to come out of hiding. And what happens when they come out of hiding in First John chapter 1? God invites us to come out of hiding, stop covering up and blaming, confess, and experience the truth of his love. And so if we want to come out of here, I'm not going to be hiding. I'm going to say I have this sin. I'm going to come into the light. And then now what do we experience? We experience the truth of his love that we're in hiding because of a lie about God's love. When we come into the light, now we discover what God does when we come into the light with our sin. And we can come out of hiding to be naked and not ashamed again. Naked, once again, being spiritually, morally naked that we don't have to cover up. And so what kind of light is this that God invites us into? I think sometimes we might envision it being an interrogation light. Where are you? Come out here. What would you do wrong? Why would you, you know, an interrogation light? But what we discover in this passage is, is first it's the light about ourselves. I'm going to come into the light. I'm going to come out of hiding. This is the truth about me, that I do have sin. But we're also coming into the light about God. What is He like? When I come out, I believe this lie that He doesn't love me. When I come into the light, now I discover He loves me more than I can imagine, even despite my sin, that He loves me in it. We come up into the light about how God responds to our falling short. Numbers, we talked about this um, uh, recently in a sermon, but Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, it's this, this blessing. If you're here when uh, um, uh, Pastor Lee uh, preached on, um, what was he, preached on a steadfast love in the Exodus series, that he sang that blessing over us at the end of the service, that uh, we're to live in the, the light of God's face, God glowing. And so when we come into the light, we're coming into God's love and joy and delight and pleasure in us, that his face shines upon us. A father inviting his child to come out of hiding, to see his smiling face and hear, I love you. You did wrong, but I love you. And that's how we get back to life as it's meant to be. But as I said at the beginning of the service, when it comes to what we've done wrong and having it pointed out or realizing it, we have three basic responses, three, ba- three decisions we can make in that moment. And there's two that keep us in the dark circle. This is how we say no to being loved by God. The two that keep us in the dark circle, uh, walking in the dark, is denying we have sin. And so we might say, to, if somebody points out what oh, we've done wrong, or like, Jesus died for you, and you need to admit you need that, and we'd say, well, I've done nothing wrong. I've kept all the rules. Like, I'm living a good life. Like, there's, I look at my record. Like, sure, there's a couple things on there that I would, you know, take back, but I'm keeping the rules. I'm giving my money. I'm showing up on Sunday. I'm praying and reading the Bible. I'm trying to do good things for good people. I send some money to missionaries. Like, look, I've kept the rules. And so I, I don't, this would be a way of saying I don't have sin. Another would be to say I've done nothing wrong because the rules don't really matter. And there's two types of people that would maybe be in this category. So one person would say, I don't really care about the rules. I'm going to live how I want. And another way you could say it is like, well, I mean, I know there's these laws and rules and commands God gives, but I mean, he's not really expecting us to obey them. Um, They're really just to show us how we need forgiveness and how we fall short. And so 
I don't need to pay attention to those. And those are two ways of saying, basically, uh, I've done nothing wrong, or saying, you're wrong in bringing this to me and pointing out how I've done wrong. Like, don't push all these rules and laws on me. Like, besides God, it's his job to forgive us and to love us and accept us. And so these are two ways of covering up, of hiding, of like something's being pointed out, and it's like, no, I'm going to cover myself up, and I'm going to hide. I'm not going to step into the light with this. And these two categories fit in like this. Some of us can't see how God could love us if we don't keep the rules. And some of us can't see how God could love us if he gives us rules to keep. And so if you're thinking, I don't know how God could love me if I don't keep the rules, that's us thinking, well, I have to earn his love. And if you're thinking, I don't see how God could love us if he gives us all these rules to keep, uh, that's us saying, like, well, his rules, we're not seeing his rules and commands as an expression of his love towards us. And another way to say it is God is only good to us if we keep the rules, or God isn't good to us if he gives us rules to keep. Like, I have to be good, and then God will be good to me. Or if God's going to ask me to do all this stuff, surely that's not a good God. He doesn't really care about all that stuff. And one looks for freedom and fulfillment in the rules. The other looks for freedom and fulfillment in outside the rules. And neither looks to God for freedom and fulfillment. Both are unsatisfying, and they don't treat our problems seriously enough. They're like band-aids on the issue. We talked about that last week, that uh, we can't really be treated for something until someone understands the severity and the depth of it. And both of these are band-aids on a cancer inside of us. And then there's one way, those are two ways to say no to God's love. There's one way to say yes to God's love. And we're coming back to the light circle. Because those are both ways to live in the dark. And this other circle is God's way. God's way of dealing with their sin. And so God's way is the rules are meant to be obeyed. That God gives commands. God gives laws. And he expects them to be obeyed. He doesn't waste words. Like he's not just saying it and then like, ah, yeah, you're right. I don't really care. He follows through like they're meant to be obeyed. But the reality is you'll never earn his love by obeying them because you can't. You can't keep them all. If we're going to earn God's love, we can't earn it. It's impossible. And there's a penalty for breaking the rules. And what God shows is that he pays the penalty himself. The rules matter. You can't keep them. And so that leaves us in a pickle. Are we going to keep trying to obey them to earn his love? Or are we going to say they don't matter? And God says, no, the rules really do matter. And yet I will love you apart from your obedience to them. That I will myself will pay for how you've not followed them. And we saw in the passage, when you come out of hiding to tell the truth about yourself, to confess, to stop covering up, to stop blaming and justifying, defending, what happens? We're told in 1 John that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, which is a pretty graphic image, like, Imagine a bucket of blood and you're like trying to wash somebody with it. But the, the point is that Jesus' death gets applied and washed on us and it takes away our sin. It washes off our sin. Even imagine us, we're, we're in the dark, we're here, we're, we, we're denying we have sin and finally we're like, okay, I'll admit it. And it's like, okay, come into the light. We come into the light and we're all dirty and yucky. And then what does God do? He doesn't say, clean yourself up before you come in my house. No. What does God do? He says, okay. I mean, this image, we're going to get into this next week. Jesus saying, using the image in John 13, of he's washing his disciples' feet. Just their feet. Just washing their feet. Gross, disgusting. And one of his disciples, Peter, says, no, I'm not going to have you wash me. You're my Lord. You're my teacher. I can't have you wash my feet. That's servant's work and the lowest servant's work. And Jesus says, if you will not let me wash you, then you have no part with me. That if you're going to say no to this act, there's no way you're going to say yes to my death in your place. And he's giving us this metaphor that what happens when we come into the light 
as now Jesus comes and he says, okay, sit down. We're like, okay, you know, we're all, we're all yucky. We sit down. And then he takes off his royal robe, puts on a servant's robe, fills up a bucket of water. I guess in this case it'd be his, his blood. And he comes, and if, if that's weird for you, just imagine the water, because he does that too in John 13. And he comes and he starts just washing us. And it, imagine how like vulnerable, like imagine if I was like, just said, I'll use Katie so nobody else feels weird. Like, Katie, I want you to come sit up here and just let me wash your feet. And you all would, it, it's so vulnerable. Imagine that, somebody in your life just letting them wash your, just wash your feet, but then, or like giving you a bath. I mean, some people aren't able to do that themselves. And that vulnerability of somebody else has to wash me and give me in this bath, this intimacy of it. And every time we sin, we're invited to come into the light and Jesus can say, sit down. And he comes and he starts washing. So we just have to take it. And you'd just be, I mean, it'd be comfortable, but you're also like touched, like this person's treating me so kindly, so tenderly, so gently. And so we're told the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And look at um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First John, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So there it is, like you're going to break the commands and I don't want you to sin. But then what happens if you do? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we're told that Jesus Christ is righteous. He obeyed perfectly. That he doesn't deserve to die. He doesn't deserve to have his blood spilled. And yet he's the propitiation, which is a big Bible word, which means to uh, a sacrifice uh, that turns away wrath. And we learn in the Bible that God, there is wrath. This is God's settled disposition towards all that is ungodly and unlawful. That God has a law and justice needs to be, uh, demands that a payment be made. And so what Jesus does is, is that he pays it. God himself pays what d- justice demanded for us in our place. And so we're all Adam and Eve. We all are. And God invites us to come out of hiding. And we think it's going to cost me if I come out of hiding. Because what's going to happen if Everyone really knows what I'm like, the things that I've done. We think it's going to cost us, but who it actually costs is God. And we might picture, like, well, how does God help us? It can't be just like, oh, you're, like, you know, late on your mortgage or your rent. Like, I'm just going to write you a check. Or, like, oh, I'll come and give you some assistance and some advice. No, what we need, the, the, the treatment, the cure we need for the sickness we have must be more radical than that. Jesus loved us, we're told, and gave himself for us, that he substitutes himself for us. There's an exchange. He switches places with us. That it can't just be like, I'm going to get you off the hook. But what happens is we're in this darkness and we come out with all our dirtiness and this is what we deserve for it. And Jesus says, I'm going to switch places with you. I'm going to take what you have so I can give you what I have. I'm going to take what only you deserve so I can give you what only I deserve. He takes our place so that we can take his in our relationship with God. And we can only get what is his if we'll give him what is ours. And so what happens is this is exchange that Jesus gives up his life to take on our death in order to give us life. He gives up his riches to take our poverty to make us rich with every blessing in heaven. He gives up his righteousness to take our condemnation to give us his righteousness. He gives up his intimacy with God to take our alienation from God so that we can have his intimacy with God. He uh, gives up his acceptance with God to take on our rejection so we can have his acceptance in God's sight. And he gives up his blessing to take our curse so we can have blessing uh, in his place and so every time we sin we have the same choice either he pays for it or we do 
And if we're going to stay in the dark, then we're going to pay for it. If we come into the light, then he'll, he's paid for it. Someone has to bear the cost of our sin, of our law-breaking. And when we come into the light, Jesus, or before we come into the light, when Jesus has died for us, he comes alongside of us and stands at the foot of the cross and says, I don't deserve to be up there. You do. You deserve the alienation. You deserve the death. You deserve the penalty for your sin. I don't deserve it, but I'll gladly take your place. I'll pay for your sin instead of you, if you'll let me. And so often, we keep trying to pay for sin that Jesus has already paid for. That we beat ourselves up. We're afraid of God. We avoid Him. Until we get a good streak going again. Like God, I, you know, you've probably heard people say, maybe you, you've even said it, oh, if I ever set, church, set foot in a church building, I'd be struck by lightning. And so we're like, you know, I've got somebody, we know somebody's got to pay for this. And when we sin, we feel like, okay, maybe if I get cleaned up myself, maybe if I get on a good streak of like, I've done good things, haven't yelled at my spouse or my dog, or, you know, whatever it is, I've been, you know, paying, giving, and I got on track with my Bible reading, praying, and I've got a good streak for two weeks. Oh, I've cleaned myself up, and now I'm going to come. And we're trying to pay for sin that Jesus has already paid for. Are we afraid of God, avoid Him, live with guilt. And shame, we hide and we live under the penalty of our sin every day, even though somebody else already paid for it. So sin is a golden opportunity to experience how loved you are. When we do something wrong, it's a golden opportunity to experience how loved you are. And coming into the light over and over again with what we've done wrong grows our awareness of how undeserving God's love we are and how much, how far short we are of earning it, and which grows our security in it, and it frees us. And our awareness takes us deeper and deeper into it. That um, there's a, actually it's in this book, but I don't have the page marked. Um, he talks about how the spiritual journey, journey is a good uh, way to talk about the spiritual life, because it's just one step at a time going uh, somewhere. But also it's, a, it's, more, it's less about uh, accomplishment and more about awareness that we aren't accomplishing more as people, as disciples of Jesus, but actually what we're happening is becoming more and more aware of just how good God is, how loving He is. At the same time, we're becoming more and more aware of our sin. It goes from just like the surface stuff, to like I'm going to stop swearing, I'm going to stop you know, gambling, whatever it is, and we start going down and being like, oh my, like in my heart, my motivations are wrong for even the good things I do. We become more, more, more and more aware of that and keep coming to the light we become more and more aware of God's love and how undeserving of it we are. And that frees us. Because if he already knows how bad we are, when he invites us into the light, we don't have to worry about, is he going to find something out that he's going to not want to want me anymore? That he keeps calling us in to go deeper into it. And so as we come into the light, we keep letting go of reasons we think we've earned or deserve his love. And so we experience it more fully. When we get to say, it's not about me, it's not up to me, it's all based on him. It's not based on me. I love this picture in First uh, John chapter 2, uh, verse 1. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And advocate translates a word that's kind of hard to translate. Uh, the basic meaning in Greek is like someone who comes alongside. And so sometimes people have talked about it like, well, Jesus kind of like can come alongside of us. And he's kind of like our defense lawyer. And he can 
and of any accusation that had come to us, he can say, no, 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 I've already paid for that. That accusation doesn't stick. But I was thinking about this word, and sometimes I think it can feel like, well, Jesus is our advocate to bring us to the Father. And that can make us think like, well, the Father is going to be like, he sees our mess, and he's going to be like, wait a second, like, I'm not going to stand for this. And Jesus says, just wait, Dad. Uh, I already paid for it, so you don't have to be mad at him. That, that's a weird situation, right? That's not how God works. Because the Father himself is the one who in love chose us and chose to send his son. And so there's not this weird, like, Jesus has to calm down God the Father so to remember, like, whoa, don't kill him, Dad. Like, he, I already died for it, so I don't have to die. That's a weird situation. And sometimes when I think about us as, uh, us as parents, like, there's times that I might get a little riled up and talk in a way that isn't helpful to my kids. And then Katie might have to say, gentle, slow, or take a break. And that's not the situation we're talking about with God and us, that Jesus is like Katie when I'm like getting upset. But there's other times when Hudson has maybe done something wrong. He's been doing things he shouldn't do. And then he's actually learned it feels guilt or fear of it, shame. And there's times that Katie, he like wants me, but he can't bring himself to come to me. And so Katie will come alongside of him, give him this assurance, and help him come so he can say, Daddy, you know, will you hold me? Or something like that. And I like that picture of Jesus coming alongside of us. And we're like, no, if I go to God, what's he going to think? What's he going to do to me? What's it going to be like? And Jesus comes alongside and says, it's going to be okay. I paid for this. I know him. He is going to love you. He's going to embrace you when you go to him. And Jesus frees us from the lie that God doesn't really love us by dying for us and helping us see God for who he really is. And so what is a disciple? Someone loved by Jesus. And there's two ways to talk about God's love. Factually, or as a, kind of a, a tr- fact of, how do you say it? Fact of truth, truth, tr- truth. And then there's also experientially. And I just want to share you with the, this, uh, two quotes from this book. He says, if an encounter with divine love is really so transformational, how is it that so many of us have survived such encounters rel- relatively unchanged? It seems that the experience of love, even God's love, does not always have transforming consequences. It's important to understand why this is the case. Then he goes and he explains. He says, right down below here, love is transformational only when it is received in vulnerability. And then he says, genuine transformation requires vulnerability. It's not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. And so it's this, that in the dark, if we're denying we have sin, we'll bring it to the light. We might be able to say, yes, I believe God loves me as a fact. When we come out of hiding and come into the light, it's in that moment that we actually get to experience being loved unconditionally, where Jesus says, like, okay, I brought it here, and now it's like, I don't know, I'm, I've said my whole life, I believe you love me, but now I'm in the light, and I don't know what you're going to do to me. And Jesus says, sit down. He takes off his royal robes, and he washes us, and we get to experience that love. And so how do we make a disciple? A disciple is someone loved by Jesus. How do we make a disciple? I'm just these two word, <coughs> phrases, be real and be loved, that we come out of hiding, we be real, and then we can be loved, that we're being vulnerable and opening ourselves up. And it's very costly, actually, for us to stay in the dark. It doesn't really cost us to come into the light. Well, we think it does. Like, 
my reputation, what people think of me. I'm, people are going to think less of me. And that we have to say, like, I have to, it's costing me to be here, to live like that. And I have to kind of let that stuff go. But then when we come into the light, it's cost God to pay for our sin. We want to be a community. Our theme this year is to become a campfire of God's love. That in a dark and cold world, we invite the lost and lonely to warm themselves by the fire of God's love for them. And that's what we're doing. Now, when we come on Sundays, this is us. They were coming to warm ourselves by the fire of God's love. And then we become, we get set on fire too. And we become this campfire of God's love in the world. And we want people to find joy and peace in being real, in being loved. That instead of, I mean, there's no joy and peace in the hiding, in the dark. And it's like, be, I'm going to be real and be loved. And now there's this joy like, oh my gosh, I was treated so much differently than I thought I'd be treated. And that includes in community as well. And now I have just this peace. Like I had this house of cards, this constructed facade of fig leaves covering up all my guilt and shame. And now it's, oh, I can just let it go and I can have peace. So we want to be real, we want to be loved, and become a campfire of God's love in this community, in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. It's just beyond words. It's beyond words for us to even express or grab hold of, but we can feel it. Feel it for as real as it is. And so would you let us feel that today and this week? Would you make us into people who are loving and who are loved? So in the name we pray. Amen.